World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Throughout this series, we will be discussing some of the major global challenges we face. Deforestation to global pandemics. In our first season of World We Got This, we will be speaking with experts about the factors at play during a global pandemic, the differing global perspectives, and ultimately, the way in which we can meet this challenge. This podcast was being planned long before the outbreak of COVID-19, but all that changed just a couple of weeks ago. Now, of course, I'm recording this from home, and everyone we speak to in the coming episodes is also going to be working from home. But the key thing is that they're still working. They're still researching, they're still teaching, and they're still trying to understand how we can wrestle with this global pandemic. Because that is what the podcast is all about. So here we go. Hello and welcome to the podcast. So I wanted to mention two things before we get started. Firstly, we had planned to talk about big data in this episode and how it's being used to tackle this pandemic. But unfortunately, the researchers we did plan to speak to have been called away. And that will happen time again, I'm sure, as people go on to try and tackle this coronavirus. Secondly, we had some technical issues when we were recording. It's meant that we lost some of the sound quality. And so we've had to cut and rearrange the episode. But the key thing is, is we wanted to make sure that this episode was kept. It has some really important, vital lessons about how we defeat coronavirus. In particular, some lessons perhaps we can learn here in Europe and in the US from counterpart governments in Asia. This week's episode is all about innovation, and in particular, how innovation can be utilised to help tackle COVID-19. Perhaps as more interestingly, we try to look at innovation as a process and as a theory. How innovation is implemented by both governments and big business to get the results that we need. Our first guest is Dr. Robin Klingler-Vidra. Senior Lecturer in Political Economy in the Department for International Development at King's College London. Robin has worked for a long time now at looking at how innovation is implemented across the world and some of the results from that, not just in new technologies, but also in terms of societal benefits. As you'll hear, some of her insights into the work that's been done in Vietnam and the success it's had during this COVID-19 outbreak are really astounding. I know in recent weeks we've had discussions here in the UK and across Europe about the speed at which governments implemented lockdown, but also critically about the role testing plays in helping defeat this virus. Robin lays out some really clear lessons from Vietnam, lessons perhaps that we can all take. And hopefully this episode and what we've put together will allow us all to hear about those. Our second guest, Professor Kerry Brown, is director of the Lao China Institute here at King's College London. Kerry has been watching closely as this virus has spread from China, and he's been looking at its, how the Chinese government have responded. In particular, we discussed the role that the state has played. Clearly, they've been able to mobilise their massive power towards locking down the country. But perhaps more difficult in this case was a discussion around what role innovation plays in the Chinese state and whether they're capable with their restrictions on civil liberties in developing new technologies and new researches that can actually get us out of this COVID-19 outbreak. So here we go. 
a slightly cut down, a slightly edited episode for you. We did what we could, we innovated. And as you'll hear, innovation is going to play a key role in helping defeat this COVID-19 virus. So Robin, reading your most recent research, it seems that Vietnam has been incredibly successful in helping slow and in many cases stop the spread of COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's happened in Vietnam uh, and how they've been successful? That's absolutely right. Uh, So the Vietnamese government was really proactive. They jumped into this status of high alert in the very beginning of January, just days after the virus was reported in Wuhan. In fact, on January 3rd, border controls were tightened. Hospitals were placed on high alert for this new type of virus that caused respiratory issues. Now, this came way before there were actually cases of COVID-19 reported in Vietnam. In fact, the first cases were reported on January 23rd, so a full 20 days after they had already moved into the state of high alert. And you mentioned the successes that they've had, and, and you're absolutely right. There's increasing coverage of this idea that the Vietnamese states and people have had a reasonably remarkable and, and this effective frugal approach. Just to give you a sense of the scale and, and the maybe indications of how effective it's been, as of today, so April 15th, Vietnam, which of course has a large land border with China and a population of just about 97 million people, has a total of 267 COVID-19 cases and no deaths reported. Beyond that, they have 169 cases of the COVID-19 patients who have now recovered. More than 40 of these cases come from one particular cluster, the Bakmai Hospital that is a specialist COVID-19 treatment center in Hanoi. And I think one thing that's interesting as well is a lot of the cases that have come to Vietnam in recent weeks are in fact returnees and foreigners visiting the country. So in terms of the early response being effective in stopping or slowing down the spread within national borders. It was extremely effective. We'll talk more about it, but just to say the government's role in this is is many, but one that's been really important is the role that it played in communicating. The government has communicated from the very beginning that this is very serious, right? You can think of the institutional memory of responding to SARS. And so the government has been leading a early and strong charge in using traditional media platforms and also social media platforms to ensure that as much of the population as possible knows about the telltale signs, the symptoms, and is aware of the virus. So this has meant that the Vietnamese people have been acutely aware from the beginning of this year that this was different than the seasonal flu. It needs to be taken really seriously. On top of that, containment efforts and contact tracing has been extremely systematic. For example, the Bakmai hospital that I mentioned before was recently in lockdown for about two weeks, and entire villages where there are cases discovered are fenced off, are you know completely isolated to ensure that there is a complete stop to the spread of the virus. And more recently, last month on March 10th, the government launched a new free app that's now the most downloaded uh, free app in, in Vietnam. That's all about opting in, people sharing details of symptoms so that they can better trace who may have the virus. And I understand from your work that they've also been incredibly successful in terms of developing testing capacity. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about what they've done and and in particular that, that, that testing innovation that they've brought about? 
That's right. In fact, Vietnam has been exporting its affordable test kits to Europe just as a a signal of the effectiveness of uh, their quick response. So Vietnam hasn't been pursuing testing on the same scale as Korea, Germany, Singapore. It's made headlines for producing really effective and frugal test kits. So this in line with this broader frame of this frugal, effective response to the pandemic. Now, the way that they did it is, again, in, back in January, towards the end of January, Vietnam's Ministry of Science and Technology organized a meeting on COVID-19 with sort of thought leaders in, in virology, virologists from across the country. And this meeting really helped to instigate the development of affordable test kits. It put the development of affordable test kits at the top of the agenda. Now, from that meeting, there were a number of, well, three well-known and exported outside of Vietnam as well, three test kits, uh, one produced by the Institute of Military Medicine, one coming um, from an institute within the Vietnam Academy of Science and Technology, and another, as you mentioned, coming from university, uh, from researchers at the University of Technology in Hanoi. Now, these test kits were, according to some coverage, have said that these test kits should have taken years to produce in the way that they are so affordable to be run. Each test kit costs no more than $25, which has meant that as Vietnam's had to ramp up the number of testing, if you know, moving beyond the contact tracing and containment, it's able to increase the volume of testing that it's doing by virtue of this really quick response. These three test kits were ready in early March. I think March 5th was the date that all three of them were ready. One of them was ready a bit before that. Uh, And they all produce results in a very fast manner. Uh, So a maximum of 80 minutes. Uh, So just within an hour and a half, the tests produce the results. And these Test kits have been externally validated by bodies in Vietnam. They haven't yet been validated by the World Health Organization. But as I say, they have been exported to countries around the world, including to Europe, which I think is an indication of the quality and and the hope that they represent. I mean, it is striking from your work that they were, that the Vietnamese government were meeting on January 3rd to discuss the crisis, um, and they were implementing measures long before their first cases had even arisen. Um, it's also striking that they put testing at the heart of their strategy, and that seems to have been uh, key to their success. And that innovation-led approach um, has obviously brought benefits um, to the government in Hanoi. You mentioned SARS early on um, in our discussion. How important was that earlier crisis um, for governments like Vietnam Uh, to learn the lessons um, of how to deal with a pandemic? Has it played a role um, in their successful attempts to tackle COVID-19? I think that it's a reflection of absolutely the muscle memory of the experience with SARS being paramount. Also being very aware of the large number of daily movements across the border with China and having this sense of urgency that we need to act now. We need to have our own means to test. We need to have a response systematized in how we are going to get a clamp down on this. You know, and they didn't wait until, quote unquote, we knew that there was person to person transmission. From the moment that there was word of there's a new SARS-like virus in China, there was a jump into action and testing and having capacity to test 
within Vietnam's own government, private sector, university, within national borders was of paramount importance. Robin, your work outlined four lessons that governments can learn from the Vietnamese case. Can you tell us more about those? To say what I think that we can take from this and these lessons from Vietnam. For me, first, the state is a mobilizer or the mobilizer. It's the convener. The Vietnamese state convened the virologists early on so that there was the chance for the development of local affordable test kits in time, right? And having these three verified test kits by the beginning of March, I think is an incredible feat and something that perhaps wouldn't have happened if the state didn't put this right on the agenda and say, okay, we have the details of this virus. We have the whole genome of the virus. Here's everything that sort of we know about it. Now, you as a variety of different actors across the Military Institute for Medicine and the university, et cetera, across actors, let's get to work on developing means for testing. So the state first as the mobilizer and convener. Second, the state has had this essential role, in, in my view, of establishing this shared mission. And they've established it early and reiterated it often across traditional media, across, you know, newspaper, across TV, and also through social media. So, you know, we're in this together. We know that there's this new, potentially destabilizing, fatal epidemic that's on its way to, to pandemic status. We, we all have to act, right? We're part of this nation that, that everyone has a role. And establishing early on this is serious and we all are going to work together, I think has been a really important role that the state has played here and perhaps is something that's also noticeably different with some Western economies where the threat was sort of minimized and it was, oh, it's happening over there. Let's wait, let's see, or it's just a bad case of the flu. So the first, status mobilizer and convener. Second, this shared mission that's established by the state. Uh, third, I would say it's taking an approach to innovating that isn't reinventing the wheel, if you will. It's innovating on top of existing technologies. So these test kits, for instance, that were developed were built on top of existing technology, specifically existing test kits from the World Health Organization, from the American Center for Disease Control and, and Protection, so the CDC in the U.S., and going from there instead of thinking we have to do from the beginning. And the fourth point that I would distill as a lesson from the Vietnamese case which is a really tricky one. Like I'll, I'll say it and, and we say it again and again in studying policy and what works well, but collaboration across ministries with private sector and with universities. This is a, the sort of really tricky bit to actually do. And in this case of responding to COVID-19, the Vietnamese government acted across ministries. It acted encouraging, involving private sector. So for instance, one of the test kits that I mentioned that was developed by the Institute of Military Medicine, that was actually commercialized by a private company who had the capacity to then go ahead and produce large quantities of this, uh, which has meant that in Vietnam, there's many, and they've also had orders to export to over 20 countries. So this movement across the, the state from the Ministry of Science and Technology with public health, social affairs, et cetera, is something that we often don't see. It's a very difficult thing, especially in the realm of promoting innovation to sort of bring everyone effectively into the agenda. And in this case, one of the key lessons of what we can learn from Vietnam is 
collaborate across government and with multi-stakeholders, private sector and university. Thanks so much, Robin. I, I mean, I, I would just urge everyone to go and read Robin's research, read her piece um, on the King's website. It really gives us a sense of what effective um, action looks like in the face of this virus. I think there's a lot to learn uh, for governments around the world. And so hopefully uh, people will take a look at that research and learn some lessons from Vietnam because they've clearly been very effective in helping stop the spread of this this virus. Kerry, turning to you, uh, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Now, in your role as director of the Lao China Institute, you'll have been watching um, this pandemic um, in terms of China's response, but also in how it's affected what's been going on in China. I mean, clearly, they've been able to mobilize the state um, in order to, do, to deliver a lockdown. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about how the state operates in China, in particular, uh, the role it plays in helping develop innovation um, to tackle big national challenges, including COVID-19? Yeah, thank you. The role of the state in China is, um, you know, it's an enabler, it's a motivator, it's a mobilizer, and it's a commander. So, you know, the problem is not that it's there. The problem is that it's everywhere. And that can be a big, big benefit sometimes. Uh, and maybe in a condition like this, it is a benefit, but it's also problematic. The kind of interesting thing is that the virus has been an opportunity, I suppose, for researchers in China to work with the outside world. And the politics has not really got into the laboratory as yet. There's the Shanghai Public Health Clinical Center and School of Public Health. They have been working on the um, initial viral um, genome. Uh, and then there's also uh, a group in Hong Kong, which is, of course, part of China, though separate. They have been working particularly with partners in the uh, UK to try and work out what the origins of the virus were and also the important issue of the vaccine. There's also been, I suppose, a more contentious area, which is using apps and social media and other kind of technology to track people movements. I mean, that's been talked about a bit in the UK too and elsewhere. You know, having this sort of ability to know if people have come in contact with other people that have been infected with the virus. I mean, I guess the problem with this kind of technology, of course, is that there aren't great restraints on data sharing privacy and things like that in China. And so it's not an easy thing for that to be kind of really shared with the outside world. So I guess if you're standing looking at the issue today, in some areas, it's pretty positive the way that Chinese partners have been working with the outside world. In other areas, it's more problematic. I think the conclusion you can really come to is that the Chinese system has loads of resources. It has the capacity and it certainly has the will at the moment. But does it have the ability? I mean, you know, capacity is one thing, ability is another. I mean, it's certainly got a lot of researchers and a lot of, uh, you know, kind of material and other resources. But does it have the intellectual capacity or is it absolutely going to have to work with the outside world? And I mean, does the outside world have the intellectual capacity too? I mean, that's a sort of different, it's a related but a different issue. At the moment, you'd have to say that it's pretty unproven whether China really does have the ability to work as it wants to in this area but it's certainly got the capacity. Robin spoke earlier about the importance of learning lessons from SARS and that Vietnam had some kind of institutional memory from that earlier pandemic. Did China also benefit from 
that experience and actually knowing how to tackle a pandemic? I remember living in Beijing at the time it happened and the whole city kind of going into lockdown, becoming a ghost town. And so, I mean, in a sense, what I've seen in the UK has been still pretty amazing, but, you know, slightly less shocking because I had the memory of that almost two decades ago in, in China. So I think the the fact that they had dealt with this slightly before, though not as dramatically, was useful some have been very critical, though, and said, in fact, they didn't learn the lessons. They still tried to cover up SARS 20 years ago, was known about quite early, but doctors were told to keep quiet about it, and then it became a bigger problem. So there are structural issues within the, the whole system that it's kind of antagonistic to people coming along and whistleblowing. But I suppose the important thing to remember is that China's public health system is going through constant evolution. It's going through constant change. And these kind of things, once they're over, they will create, I think, significant change. So we've spoken a little bit about the research and innovation that is being used to kind kind of track and slow the spread of COVID-19. Robin, thinking ahead to measures that might be brought about so that we can end or partially end some of the lockdown, how important is innovation and technology going to be to doing that? And I guess those countries that are able to better innovate, perhaps places like Vietnam, do they have a head start in terms of the economic recovery? Technology and innovation will certainly be essential for coming out of lockdown. And just to pick up on Carrie's point of the trade-off between effectiveness and the erosion of civil liberties, it's been incredible to, to watch as uh, a political economist how debates over you know, should we give this data, uh, you know, the, and then the different systems of the, the Chinese, uh, you know, QR code that shows uh, the different traffic like system of whether or not you can move uh, versus the systems that it's opt in in the Vietnamese app that I mentioned. It's something that you download and you choose to opt in, which I think is similar to what we're doing here in the UK. I would absolutely imagine that these types of apps where Hopefully, people are choosing to give their data on symptoms, on where they're going, will be essential. And we've seen just last week, you know, in the U.S., uh, we've had sworn enemies, Apple and and Google, who have now said last Friday that they will collaborate to develop software that can help with tracking and, and contact tracing. And you can imagine that these types of solutions will certainly be part of the story. You know, as many uh, analysts have said. Going into lockdown is a very fast process and coming out is long and much more studied. So the name of the game then, I think, continues to become ramping up testing and having the ability to do that at an affordable pace and across the, the country. And then also this issue of information sharing. And it'll be something that we've never seen before, I think, in the scale of what do systems do to both protect their citizens, but then continue to ensure that they are all ultimately the owners of their data and are maintaining their own freedoms and civil liberties. Robin, we've spoken about the importance of the state in terms of innovation in a time of crisis, and your research points to the role of the state as perhaps convener and mobiliser, as you mentioned. Thinking forward to possible future pandemics, but also when we think about tackling other big global challenges, are we going to see the state take a more active role in innovation um, as opposed to perhaps just leaving it to the market? There's two ways that we could think about how this sort of quote unquote brings the state back in. So 
one, the, the post-COVID state, I think will have a more explicit role in setting the social purpose for national innovation systems. So rather than the big innovators, the, the big tech firms, innovating in realms that are going to capture sort of more users, uh, sorry for the pun, but sort of go viral in apps and things like this and capture the, the median user who's, who's able to pay and, and they can get ad revenue from it. The post-COVID state will have, I think, more authority in its voice and saying, well, here's, you know, what's the purpose of innovation for society? Less of the antagonistic relationship that I mentioned before and more about thinking, well, these are the directions. This is the agenda. And then collaborating with empowering the sort of Silicon Valley type of firms to, to go from there. I think second, you know, I've done work on inclusive innovation specifically in, in Vietnam. And perhaps it's slightly my wishful thinking, but based upon my research, hope that changes in the understanding of the states and innovation after the pandemic or as we evolve with the pandemic is that there's a movement towards innovation that is with social purpose, with greater inclusion at the heart. So a more inclusive notion of innovation. Let's focus our, our best and brightest on moving the technological frontier and developing the latest and greatest capacity in, think AI, think robotics, etc. And instead thinking, how can we motivate innovation that is good for the whole of society, that solves issues of inequality, issues of exclusion, tackles public health issues, climate change and sustainability so my hope would be that the way in which and the extent to which states and firms are thinking about innovation that is socially beneficial becomes much more to the fore. I mean, one of the things that the pandemic has really been, been laying bare in a truly brutal way is inequality that comes from this digital divide. The members of society who have jobs, who are able to work from home, having calls and interactions very much like we are now, have one version of the crisis that they're dealing with. They're in lockdown, but they're, they're still reasonably connected and they're not putting themselves physically into harm's way going out. And those on the other side of the digital divide, of course, in many cases, having to not have a choice of staying home or going out. The essential workers, those who physically need to be present in order to do their job, and thinking about, well, what would be a positive to come from this and thinking about the way that we orient innovation activities and this coordination between states and innovators is to think about how can we continue to put innovation in a trajectory that is good for the whole of society that has these big social purposes. So a big thank you to Dr. Robin Klingler-Vidra and Professor Kerry Brown. Next week, we'll be joined by the co-directors of the new Centre for Society and Mental Health. We'll discuss how this pandemic and the lockdown are putting particular strains on our emotional well-being. And we'll also discuss what government and society can do to help. You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This, brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this here you'll find a full list of further reading materials this podcast has been produced by james bagley and julia stepawoska with editing by rachel wall to help us reach more people 
Please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this.